about seven years, and I started this youth group in sixth grade. And one time when I went, I did not know <laughs> what I was in for. And youth group began, and I was just like hanging out with friends, and my foot went numb, like the tingling feeling you get when your foot falls asleep. And then it was my leg and my arm and my hand, and then it was like half my face, and I didn't really know what was happening. And I was kind of nervous because it was the same time when a kid in my school got Bell's palsy, so I thought I might be getting it too. And so I just kept listening to the message, and I tried to answer one of Susie's questions, and in my head it made sense, but out loud it didn't make any sense. And so I started to panic a little and not know what to do. So I went and called my mom, but she came around the corner when I was about to call her, so I was like, oh, and I told her. And she told me she was going to go get Jody. And Jody came, and she was like, you're struggling with fear. And I was like thinking about it, but I wasn't really sure if she was right or not. And so I sat there listening, and she told me that fear was not from God but from the devil and that I shouldn't be fearing because God is with me. And then she told me that whenever I feel scared, to say I rebuke the spirit of fear in Jesus' name. And she prayed for me, and I felt <laughs> like a lot better. And then 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so later, I went to the hospital because my mom was nervous about what happened. And they couldn't find anything wrong with, like, my muscles or anything. But they said if my mom wants to, that I could get an MRI to check anything with my brain. And she obviously wanted to because she does MRIs and stuff. So after the MRI, I hated it. Um, they couldn't find anything wrong with my brain. I was completely normal. So we just said that that was just the way God wanted to meet with me. And we kept going. So looking back now, I definitely see where I was struggling with fear. I couldn't get really through sleepovers without worrying or um, calling my parents because I was scared that something was going to happen to them or the house when I was gone. And every storm, like every cloud I saw, I would have to ask my dad if it's a storm cloud because I was scared of tornadoes and stuff. And so now after that experience, I can go <laughs> through sleepovers and I can go camps that are like week long and not be scared or anything and I love storm clouds because I like lightning and stuff to watch it and I probably never would have gone on like vacations and stuff that like some of the things we do because I'd be scared I'd get hurt or something and fear didn't just leave me on that day it still comes back but now when it comes back I am ready for it and I'm prepared and I know it has no place in my life and I can um just go through and get rid of it. So that's my testimony. Uh, hi, my name is Mason. I've been just started going to this youth group uh, this year. And uh, so we, uh, a couple of years ago, 2013, we went to Disney, and um, I was, like, really thirsty, and we didn't know what was wrong, and, uh, but, you know, it was okay. I thank God I was, you know, really happy. Everything was going well, and then I went to the doctor's after on um, September 13th, uh, 2013, and uh, I found out that I had type 1 diabetes, and I was sad 
with, and I was like, why me? What did I do? Like, how come I have to be the one that gets this? And then I started looking at it with perspective and knowing, you know, God has a plan for me and good will come out of this. And it just really helped me. And um, God really worked in my heart and just, you know, trust in me. And I just have to believe and trust that uh, he has a perfect plan. Something good will come out of this. And I'm no longer sad, and I just know that God's plan is better than mine. Hi, um, my name is Susie Williams. I think I probably know most of you. Um, But I have been working with the youth for a really long time. Um, To put in perspective, Julia was in preschool Um, I had a three-year-old and an infant when I started working with the youth group. Julia will be in seventh grade in the fall, and I do not have an infant anymore. So um, it's been a really incredible journey with these guys, and I've learned a lot about um, teenagers and about God working with the youth. Um, First of all, I thought when my kids were infants and toddlers, that would be the smelliest time of, um, you know, development. It is not. It is not. Teenagers smell, like, even clean ones. They have this aroma about them that is it's really hard. And rules like no bare feet are really important in the youth group because it really protects the learning environment because it's very distracting when you're completely stifled by odors. So I've learned, I've learned that. I've also learned that when celebrating anything that involves sugar, any kind of cake, food, brownies, you do that after you need any amount of attention span. We used to celebrate birthdays every month and give them sugar at the beginning of our night. Not a good idea. It does not really, um, it doesn't really develop into a very productive evening. So now we sugar them up right before we send them home. And it works out really well that way. Yes. I've also learned that when you're talking to teenagers, you need to make crystal clear what you're saying and state and restate your point many different times. Or else you can have a great lesson that then a parent emails you about and says, did you tell my son that drunk people are more fun than sober people? And drinking isn't that bad. The game of telephone is really important to keep in mind when you're talking to teenagers because sometimes things get very twisted. So you definitely have to restate what you're saying. And by the way, I do not subscribe to that thought. I do not think they're more fun. It's just sort of what happened from a really productive lesson. I've also learned some incredible things about the Lord working with these guys. Um, I, I wish that on these Youth Sundays that everyone had the opportunity to see God in all his glory and how he works in and through these kids. And I had no idea coming into working with these kids that um, God would make himself so evident, not just with what I've taught them, but what they've taught me, which has been even more valuable um, than I feel like anything else. One of the things that I've learned about God is he is faithful. He's faithful all the time. I'm going to have Jenna come up and read a verse. 
Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name for in perfect faithfulness. You have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. Isaiah 25, 1. Thank you. You know, I, I was, this, this kid is not part of the youth group anymore for a couple reasons. Um, but it's probably one of the best examples I can use of his faithfulness. Um, this, this kid had been coming to youth group for a while, probably a couple years. And she's one of the kids that, you know, every week we would kind of be like, we don't expect her to see her back. And we don't understand really why she's here. Um, she didn't seem super excited about the Lord or anything that we ever had to say. And it was, it was hard, but she kept coming, so we kept investing in her. And it was frustrating because it seemed like no matter what we said or what we did or the experiences it seemed like she was having were changing her at all. And a couple years into her coming, she talked to me and Jody about something that um, had happened to her that was extremely difficult, it, probably one of the most difficult things a kid can go through, um, which led to a whole um, lot of other events that happened. Um, you know, police had to get, get involved, um, DCF got involved, and, you know, there were, it tipped off a slew of events um, that she was certainly not prepared for because no teenager really is. Um, and it blew up into this um, thing that, you know, the parents were very angry at me, and they were angry at the situation. And so I was told that I would never be able to have contact with this girl again, um, which was extremely devastating to me because I felt like, you know, I had invested, we had all had invested in this girl. I see such incredible things in this young lady and, you know, it seemed like all of a sudden this was just being, she was just being ripped out of a place that could really be a safe place for her. And I was devastated, and I thought that there is no hope in this situation. There is no way that God is going to redeem this. And little by little, um, you know, her parents contacted me and asked if I could come meet with them, which I did. Um, then they gave her permission to contact me if she wanted to. And little by little, um, this girl, she doesn't come to youth group anymore. Um, in fact, the last time I picked her up, she informed me that she was a pagan and that, you know, she didn't really understand what we were all talking about all these years, but she knew she felt safe here, which obviously, you know, it's not... We, we would hope that she would have found the Lord at this point, but you know what? That's something, that she feels safe here. And this was probably like six months ago that we had this conversation. And just last week, and she's been in contact with me, texting back and forth. Um, just last week, she um, had messaged me and said, I just want you to know I, f I saw God in the clouds today. Which, again, to other people it might seem like, kind of an odd thing to say, but it really was an incredible show of God's faithfulness, that God has been more faithful to her than maybe she even realizes at this point, and God has been faithful to me and to us through this process, and really showing us that he, he's in these situations even when they, they seem like they can't get any better. 
The other thing that I've learned about the Lord is that Jesus is the answer. You know, we talk about this all the time, and it's so cliche, like it's the Sunday school answer, um, but he really is the answer. He is our hope. Um, 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18 says, Therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Working with these kids and the kids that I work with at my job, things can seem pretty hopeless at times. Kids seem so confused. People seem so confused about morality, about sexuality, about their role, their identity. Um, we have a real self-esteem crisis in, in our youth, and it can seem so discouraging. Like, this could never possibly get any better. But Jesus really is the hope. What is seen and the things our kids are struggling with are temporary, the unseen and being eternally minded can change everything. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, can change more in a moment than we can change in a lifetime. You know, Pastor Doug says that all the time, and I have seen it play out in these kids time and time and time again. You know, all five of the leaders, we can put together the best lesson, and this is super frustrating for us sometimes, by the way. We can put together the best lesson and be like, yes, like they totally got it. And then, like, one prayer, everything's changed. And we're like, but we spent all this time preparing all of this stuff when really what these kids need, and all of that is important, but to get in the presence of the Lord, to have the Holy Spirit touch their lives, because the Holy Spirit can change them in a moment, like, no matter what we've said or done. Thank God for that. And I take comfort as a parent in the fact that Jesus is our hope and that there is hope in him. Because as a parent, I mess up all of the time. I work with parents through the youth group and my job that are crippled with guilt and condemnation over mistakes that they've made as parents, over shortcomings they have from their own brokenness. And I take comfort in the fact that there is hope in Jesus because he fills in those gaps for us as parents. And Parents are so important in their kids' lives that Satan can really use guilt and shame and condemnation to break apart um, and undermine the authority that we have in our kids' lives. The other thing that I have learned working with these kids is these kids are ridiculously awesome. Not just these kids, but teenagers in general, but I'm talking specifically about these guys. They go through this stuff, and they come out hearing from the Lord, testifying to his goodness, and they are a force for the kingdom of God, and they are worth investing in. And I think that, you know, looking at this as part of a church and these different ministries we have, um, I really, and I'm definitely biased, but I really feel really strongly that our kids and our teenagers are, they're the next leaders of our churches, and they are worth investing in because they are, they're a force. You know, they go into their schools, and pe- other kids see the difference with kid, teenagers who know Jesus. There's a hope about them. There's a light about them that, that, that are not in other kids. 
And actually, you know, I work in a public school, and a kid, no, I got to kind of put this in perspective. On Thursday, I was pretty much crying to Stacy that what is the point of all of this? Like, we work so hard. We put all of this effort in. You know, we pray for these kids, and it just seems like, like we, can't, we get through one battle just to face another one. So I was pretty hopeless on Thursday. I think that was actually the word that, you know, Stacy and I came up with. Well, on Friday, one of the kids from the school that I work in, does not know Jesus, comes into my office and says, you know, I've been thinking about this for a while, and I, I just, I don't understand something. She's like, you listen to kids all day long, and there's almost never a time where there's not a kid in your office, you know, pouring out their heart, crying, like talking about really hard things. How is it that you seem like you're happy? Or I don't know. And she kept going on. She's like, I don't really know what the word I'm looking for is. She's like, you just always seem to have like this hopefulness. And immediately the Lord like broke that attitude and and state of hopelessness I had on Thursday night. And without even thinking, I looked at her and I was like, Jesus runs my life. And that's where my hope comes from. And she definitely was like, what? What? I don't even know what that means. And so later in the day, all of this girl is part of a, a club that I am an advisor of. And she was talking to some of the other kids. And she got up. She's like, can I tell them what you said earlier? Now, I was very, um, I was a little afraid to have her say this because I'm in a public school. But I was like, sure, go ahead. And she did. And some of these kids were like, what? And over this weekend, two of the kids, who I think they're pretty good friends, so they're probably talking to each other, um, have texted me and asking what I mean by that. So what these teens bring to their schools and their communities makes a difference, and people take note. Um, And I think it's um, pretty awesome to be working with them. It's a great privilege. So Katie is going to come up now to do communion. It's going to take a little bit. Hi, I'm Katie. I got ankle surgery, so I'm on crutches. But my voice works, so let me get all my stuff, and I'll tell you about communion. And I used to not really get communion. I thought it was like a snack, and then we got this little piece of bread, and I thought it was a ripoff. And it just went really long, and I was like, what is communion? And then I kind of like started researching it and understanding it for myself, like what it's incredible, and we talked about it last year, about the wedding language we see in communion, and like, it's crazy. I thought that was the end of communion, that like, it can't get any cooler, but it does, because God is cooler. So, the title of my talk is called The Red Thread, because I want to go back to the beginning of the Passover celebration, to the beginning of where communion started from, and talk about how it all points to Jesus, because the whole Bible, Genesis, Exodus, it all is just showing one picture of Jesus, and so the red thread isn't a term that I made up, Beth Russell did, but um, it just kind of shows how Jesus is woven through the scriptures. So let's start in Exodus chapter 16. Can we go to the next slide? Thanks. Um, so what's happening right now is that Israel had just um, come out of slavery, and they're 
uh, wandering the desert and they need food. And so they're like grumbling to God, like, should I just kill this back in Egypt? Why'd you do this for? And God's like, guys, relax. I'm going to bring bread from heaven. And so um, that's what you see in that verse right there. He says, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. And so this is what happens every single day for 40 years in the desert. Bread is raining from heaven. Like, God is such a provider for his people that he gives them bread every single day. And um, Moses says to Aaron, he's like, hey, so we should remember this, because God is doing a miracle here. He is providing incredible things. So um, if you click it again, another verse will come up. So he says to Aaron, take a jar. Sorry, I have hair. <laughs> take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout the generations. And omer was like two liters back then, so they have a big jar of manna. And they're like, we're going to keep it because it's going to mean something. We're going to remember what God has done. And I think that's something we can even learn in our own life because if we look through our own past, like we can see God providing, right? And sometimes we don't really remember, but if we make testimonies and take omers of manna, like whatever your manna is, we can see that there is a red thread through our lives. And so um, why does this matter? Um, well, let's go to the next part. Um, the time is still going on. They're still in the desert. They're still wandering around. And God says that he wants to dwell among his people, which is kind of crazy because the Israelites are so hot and cold all the time. They're just like us. I mean, they mess up. They um, are cursing God one day and wondering why they came out of Egypt, and then they're praising him the next. And God says, no matter what, I want to dwell with my people. And so he says, I will make my dwelling among you. My soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and be your God, and you should be my people. And so what happens is we see that he will walk among us a little later in scriptures, right? It takes like 400 years after we see Jesus come, and he's walking among us. So it's almost like a prophecy, but he makes his dwelling among us in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, can we take a next one? Yeah. Um, so what the Ark of the Covenant was was a big block of wood that had gold all over it, and it was gorgeous. Like, this is like one verse about the 45 inches, 27 inches. Like, there are chapters about how specific this thing has to be. And what happens is that there's this big thing of wood, and God decides to dwell with his people. And the presence of God goes with his people every single day. They have priests who put poles in, and they have to carry it on their shoulders, and that is where people of Israel can meet with their God. And so I think what's happening here is God is beginning to lay the foundation. He's beginning to paint a really big picture we're all going to see. And later, Hebrews 9, 3, and 4 tells us that um, the manna that we see from that jar earlier, manna, the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's staff all go in this ark, and they carry it through the history. Now, that, they kind of do some good and bad. They have some rough times in history, and they end up losing the ark completely. But that doesn't end there. The manna doesn't stop. So we go to the next slide. Um, Jesus is just talking to a crowd of thousands of people, and he's like, Guys, I am the bread of life. He says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. So I have a couple of things here. First, you can see Jesus showing this big progression throughout the scriptures. But also, I want to share a point about the bread of life that Tammy once told me. And it might seem kind of silly, but I actually feel like it's really deep and wise. So thank you, Tammy. She told me one day that um, Jesus is the bread of life, not the cupcake of life. <laughs> Right? It seems weird, but in all honesty, how often do we like, look for cupcakes in life versus bread? We look for the fancy goodness and the things that we think are going to be better for us, and they're sweet, and they're so much better and flashier, when in reality, like, God is bread. <laughs> you know? And could you imagine what would happen if the whole ground was littered with cupcakes, and the Israelites, for 40 years, ate cupcakes every single day? 
they would be so sick. They would not have any nutrition in them. And this bread that seems so dull, because look at the Christian life. Like so many um, people in the world that think, oh, they can't drink, they can't party, they have no friends, they go to church on Sunday, wake up early. Like it seems dull, but this bread is life. You know, this bread is the source of everything that we need. And so we know, being the Christians, that this Christian life is not boring or dull. This bread is not stale. This is good bread. You, like, experience just a life and a, just hope and, I mean, you guys know, you know Jesus. Like, it's incredible, right? And so, yeah, that's just a little side point. Like, it's the bread of life, not the cupcake of life. Um, okay, so we go to the next slide. The whole point of this is to show how Jesus completes the Old Testament, that Jesus um, is so much greater because God is a covenant keeper. So I talked about before that um, they ate manna in the wilderness because God provided and they were hungry. And this was put in the Ark of the Covenant, which was a temporary dwelling. Like God was there for like some time and then he wasn't. Um, then we see, you can click the button, um, Jesus is the bread of life and he is life forever. You know, he says, we will eat this bread and you will not die. You will not be hungry again. Because the manna was for the physical needs of I am physically hungry. But Jesus is for our spiritual needs that we are so desperate for him. Right? And then we see the wood be redeemed, too, where the cross, which was terrible, made it so we have a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You know, God is always on to with his people, and he has orchestrated this whole big thing so that somehow, through the cross, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have access to God, and he is always there for us. So a couple of things about this. Like, we can trace the red thread through Scripture, like these type of things. We can also trace it through our own life, you know? And I have to just, like look at this picture and just say that like, circumstances don't just happen. Circumstances are all orchestrated together, and there is pain and a cost that happens. I mean, we can obviously think of the, the pain Jesus went through on the cross, but also just the pain that, like, some of the people making the ark made. You know, like, I'm sure some of them got splinters, or there was issues with hammers, or whatever. Like, there was pain involved. There was work and a cost. Like, it was layered with gold, and that takes wicked expensive. It took a lot of time to put into it. Like, these things aren't just yay, temporary dwelling and permanent dwelling, like they mean a lot and they have a lot to give and a lot to um, offer us, but it does have a, a pain and a cost for us. So like it just kind of is an encouragement to me that like when I have crazy situations in my life, there is a red thread being woven through. He just is looking through every situation and I can look back on my life and say, God was there. This is how God taught me this. And I think that we can all see that if we um, look through our own lives. So um, can we have the ushers come forward for the bread? And um, I guess in this song, let's just, uh, just kind of praise God for how he's a covenant keeper and how he um, just goes all the way with us.
Jesus Messiah, Lord of all. Thank you for your body that was broken for us. Lord God, we thank you that you are um, steadfast and ever for us. And Lord, we just thank you and praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, let's eat together. This next part's kind of long, so you guys don't have to stay here if you don't want to. Just let you know. Um, okay, so I want to play a little game at first. We're going to show a couple pictures of flags, and all the flags are very different on purpose. And all the flags are probably going to bring up different emotions in you on purpose. And that's the point. I want you to see that flags mean something. They each represent something, but like in general, they each represent something to us. And so when you see a flag, like, Yell out the name of it. It's a game. So who put the first one up? White flag, right? What does that mean? Surrender? Mm -hmm. So I go to school with Kyle, and I remember like a couple of years ago in class, we'd be like, it was a really hard assignment, and it'd be like dead silent. And you just throw up his paper and be like, white flag, I raised the white flag. I don't know, it made me think of you. But um, all right, next flag. What's the next one? That's the LGBT flag, all right? What's the next one? Nazi flag, right? How about this last one? America, <laughs> right? So they're very different flags, and they all represent very different things, and I think they all brought up very different thoughts and emotions for you guys. And that's kind of the point. So if we go to the next one, I want to talk about our flag for a little bit, because our banners, our flags, they have meaning. And that flag right there is the actual Star Spangled Banner that um, is in DC, it's huge, it's gorgeous, um, and those words on the back screen are the words, the Star Single Banner. And I just wanna set the scene for how this flag came apart. And like, it's gonna seem really crazy that I'm talking about this stuff, but it will make sense, but I also really like history, so let's just talk about what happened in the War of 1812. We had America and Britain, and it's not going very well. I mean, wars never really do, but this one's certainly not going well. And in 1813, Fort McHenry Commander Major George Armistead asked for a flag so big that um, Britain would have no problem seeing it from far away. And so this flag took over a year to make. It was super expensive, and they had this giant flag. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, so the giant flag, right? And now let's fast forward to 1814. And at this point, the White House has been burned, like, to the ground. The flames were seen over 40 miles away. And the British are in the Chesapeake Bay area. They have completely, kind of like, it looks like they're starting to win the war. Um, but now we're gonna enter, like a stage, you know, enter in Francis Scott Key. Okay, he's a young lawyer from Georgetown, and there's a prisoner of war situation where there's an elderly doctor who's been taken, and so he decides to go into the ship, he's gonna go and sail to Britain and fight for this guy's rights. Um, he kind of chose a really bad time to do this, because September 13th, 1814, at 7 a.m., a British bombardment began. So. There's like a fort with a giant flag waving and water's filled with British ships bombing America and Francis Scott Key is just on one of them, just waiting because he wants to go to Britain. So this bombardment lasted for 25 hours and um, the only way Francis Scott Key knew that America hadn't lost yet was because every time a bomb blew off, there's a flash of light and he could see the flag was still waving. Um, late in the night, there was silence and he had no idea what was going on. And what he didn't know was that a naval and light attack had failed. 
and as the dawn came up and the light started coming, um, he saw that flag and he knew that it was all okay. Um, he took out some letters out of his back pocket and wrote down these simple words of, and the flag was still there. You know, and that was in a national anthem. And then he just had a long ship ride to um, England and he just kept writing his poem and that was just what he did. So let's just remember that stage of the bombs going off and let's talk about Exodus again. So, can we go to the next one? Yeah. So before they have been given the manna and been set free, they're back in slavery, okay? They have had been enslaved to the Egyptians for 400 years and suddenly Moses with a stutter and Aaron and his brother have risen up and they are going to lead the people out. And crazy stuff is going on. Like, there have been nine plagues so far. It has been crazy, like awful for the Egyptians and Israel has been completely protected and spared by the grace of God. And so... One more thing is about to happen. It's going to be a really, really hard plague. It's going to be the 10th plague, and I'm just going to read about it quickly in Exodus 11. God's kind of just telling Moses exactly what's going to happen and getting ready for um, the big issue that's about to come. So in Exodus 11, uh, verse 4 through 8, he says, So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who sits behind the handmill, and the firstborn of all the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man nor beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So, oh, I keep going. And all of these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and your people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went from there out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So God just telling Moses, and Moses tells Aaron, there's going to be a really bad plague coming. It's going to be that the death of the firstborns of all the males in Egypt. So Pharaoh's son is affected. Everyone is affected. There is crazy mourning like there's never been before. And if you keep reading in Exodus 12, it talks about this is how you will be set apart. This is how you will be spared. And they give these long instructions about taking a male goat or lamb and uh, has to be without blemish, no bones to be broken. They must kill it, and then they must take the blood and put it on the doorposts. And then as the angel of death comes that night, when he sees the blood on the doorpost, he'll keep going, and he won't touch your children. So um, I, brought, I chose Exodus 12, 13, because there's a lot more to this blood than we think. Um, so it says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall befall you or destroy you when I take the land of Egypt. You know, this blood wasn't a one-time thing. This is a huge symbol for us today. And so I want to look at this word blood. I mean, I actually want to look at the word sign. The word sign. A Hebrew word for this looks like it says nix, like N-I-X, but I pressed a little play button on the Google, and it says oath. Okay, so the, it will be an oath for you, and this is a sign, signal, or banner, which is why we brought the flags in the first place. And so this blood was a banner for the angel of death as they walked through. And this blood doesn't just end with this one-night thing that happened to in um, Israel's history. This blood is a giant picture of Jesus' sacrifice for us. right? And Todd McCoy preached about it on Christmas Eve, about how Jesus is our Passover lamb and how it wasn't just a one-time thing, that it keeps going, and we keep remembering this. And we sing songs about it all the time, like, worthy is the lamb, and, like, Jesus was our Passover lamb. And this blood on the door, this banner, still applies to us today. And so I want to talk about what this banner means, right? Can we go to the next one? So first, this banner obviously represents the sacrifice, this incredible sacrifice that Jesus had to make. 
Um, he gave everything. He absolutely gave it all. And so um, Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says, I'm talking about Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So let's picture Jesus at the right hand of God, okay? He was there at the creation of the world. He breathed out stars and named them all. He saw the creation of Adam and how God breathed breath into his like lungs and how the glory of the Lord shone around him. His face was so glorious. He didn't even need a sun, but he was one who gave the sunlight. Like Jesus had it all. He was there with the Lord in all of his glory and splendor. And yet he came down to earth to help us, to save us. And it's not even just like he came down and was like this really cool, great guy. He was spit upon and was mocked and beaten and eventually crucified, but he was obedient unto death. He gave it all. And he also, he spilled so much of his blood. We talk about that in Hebrews 9, 12. It says that he entered into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but meaning of his own blood, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. His blood, it's covering it all. You know, his blood was our Passover blood, right? And this doesn't just mean that, like, he died, and that's great. This gives us everything. This now means that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That's Romans 8. Ephesians says that in him we have redemption. Through his blood, we have the forgiveness of sins, and we have access to the Father. His sacrifice doesn't just mean that he died. It means everything for us. Now it means that we have such a love and such an incredible God who wants to be with us now. So that's one huge part that we can just sit in awe of, that God would sacrifice everything for us. But I also want to talk about the surrender piece of um, what happened here. So this verse, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, is very popular. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. and all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. Um, I think we often take this out of context and think that if we trust in the Lord, everything will be great. Um, but I think trust in the Lord with all your heart means hands off. Like You don't get to decide what happens. It means surrender this to God. Um, lean not on your own understanding means don't try to figure it out yourself. Like, you may think this is the right way to do it, but God probably thinks it's totally different. You know, I mean, he says that his ways are much higher than our ways. And so often we don't like that or don't accept that. It says, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. A huge thing that I realize is that we don't know which way straight is. Okay, we think this is straight, but maybe straight's over there for him. Like, you don't know where God's going to lead you. You know, you are promised that he will lead you to himself, and that's exactly where you should be and where the best place is for you to be. But you don't know where you're going to go, and that's okay. Because let's think about the Israelites here, okay? There's some crazy plays going on. It's super complicated. Everything's up in arms, and God's like, take a goat, put its blood in the door. Like, does that make any sense to anybody here? That's crazy talk, right? But even since they didn't understand it, they followed through. They obeyed. They surrendered their own understanding, and they said, God, you're in control. Guys, that's not radical. That's just faith. That's just true believing. That's surrendering our own will to our own right to understand, our own right to um, know it all and figure it out. That's just saying, God, you're in control. You got this. And that's what we're called to do. And I think we often hang on to a lot of things. You know, I do. I obviously do. And um, I like this one poet, the way this one poet says it. Um, He's talking about the cause of Christ. He says, it may cause you to toss away your money, your house, your cars, your clothes. The cause may cause you to lose all of those. But what if it costs your reputation, your position, your job and ambitions? your identity, decisions, respect, and all your best intentions. 
because there's so much that we don't want to surrender. You know, so like, just take this moment to look in your heart and like, what is God calling you to surrender? You know, it could be the things I named, like the job, whatever it is, but sometimes it's just our own hearts and our own life. You know, some of us have never surrendered to God. Some of us, we know, some of us can quote the scriptures, but still never met the real Jesus that's knocking on the door of your heart and saying, will you let me in? You know, we have to surrender the fact that we can't do it on our own. We cannot get to heaven and get righteousness on our own. Okay, the Lord did it all for you. We talked about his sacrifice. He made the way so that you could trade positions with him because we did not deserve the love that he's offered us. And sometimes we try to gain love ourselves, but sometimes we have to surrender and be like, God, you know, you're in control. And just accept what he has for us. This means so much, and I think it's really important that we do think about what God is calling us to surrender. But I also want to talk about what this banner means, the way God sees us now, for those of us who have sent our lives to Christ. Um, when God sees us, we are sanctified. This banner also means sanctification, and that's a big church word that just means to be made holy or righteous. And so um, I want to talk about 1 Corinthians 6, 10 through 11. It says, uh, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Now, let's think about the blood that was on that door, okay? It didn't matter who was inside the house. When the angel of death passed by, as long as the blood was there, anyone could be in that house. But if the blood was there, it didn't matter. And so, you know, and the entire race of Israel... I am sure there were some thieves in those houses and some greedy and some were drunks and I'm sure everything under the moon was in those houses. But because the blood was on the door, it passed right by them and they were counted righteous. They were sanctified by the blood. Hebrews 13, 12, so that Jesus suffered to sanctify people, sanctify people through his blood. That's what Jesus did for us. Okay, the blood on the door for our lives, the blood, the banner of Jesus is the same way. It means that when Jesus, like when God looks at you, all he sees is Jesus. All he sees is Christ's righteousness. And that's it. It's all about the blood. There's nothing, it doesn't matter what's in the house. It doesn't matter what you've done, what's your past like, what your um, disabilities or issues have been. If the blood is on the door, if you have that Christ's blood covering you, that's all he sees. Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's it. Like You are set free from it. And embracing the way God sees you will radically change everything about your life have radically changed. Okay, so, you know, the world says, you are ugly. What are you doing? You are absolutely ugly. You're not beautiful. Who could love you? You say, actually, no, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, right? You are forgotten and unimportant. You say, no, my God rejoices with me with singing. You are fearful. Tori struggled with that, right? But God says, no, you are strong and courageous. You are alone. He says, no, my God says that he will never leave me or forsake me. If we are powerless, we feel powerless, you think, no. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in me. This blood, the way God sees us, changes everything. And we have to know what God says about us to know how he feels about us. We have to know the word. You know, that is our, our armor. It's our sword. That's how we combat the lies of the enemy, right? But the way God sees you, if you accept this, it'll change everything about you. You will no longer feel this shame because you know that God has rescued you and God loves you anyway and that he doesn't even see that on you. These things will, will change everything. My, my last point for my, for my banner, um, my victory, it starts with a V. I tried to get all the S's, but, you know, it just happened with a V. Um, and this is probably the most personal point that I could, I could make. 
So in Israel's history, this was an escape from slavery to Egyptians. And for us, it is an escape from slavery to sin. Right? But then something crazy happened because we didn't just escape from sin. Our lamb rose again, and now we have victory over sin. Okay, it's not just an escape. It's a conquest over. Like, sin cannot touch you anymore because you have been chosen as a child of God. And so um, Romans 8.37 says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And it's not because you did it. It's because the blood of Jesus Christ was in you, and you have been sanctified and chosen, and that he has lifted all the craziness off you and just called you loved and called you powerful and called you beloved. You know, <laughs> these all sound really powerful and really great, but I know that life gets hard, right? I know that life gets hard. I know that um, some of you have marriages that might be crashing and you feel like you can't escape addictions and the pull of the internet is just too much and you just have this hopeless depression crashing down and you're crippled with fear or um, you're like afraid or your finances can't pull together or you're ashamed and these things are real, okay? I'm 17 and I figured out that life gets hard, right? And I don't know your situation and I don't understand the depth of the pain that you're in, but I can tell you that life gets hard, but we still have victory over it in Christ's name. So what do we do? What do we do? Let's think about Francis Scott Key, how he saw that giant flag, right? How do you think the British felt? They just kept bombing these Americans and there's this giant flag just waving saying, I'm not giving up, I'm not giving up. When we have these crazy bombs in our life, you can name your own bomb, because I'm sure we have them. You just wave your flag, right? You wave your flag of Christ's blood. This banner, this flag, means everything. You know, we have a real enemy here. Jody always says, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but the powers of this world. We have a real enemy. All right, but how do you think Satan's going to feel when he throws at you these crazy situations, these awful bombs that are going to blow up around you, and you say, my God's got me. I'm waving my flag. My God is victorious. You know, a lot of you know my mom had cancer this year. But what, she just waved her flag. You know, she said, God is my peace and my refuge. He has me. You know, we, uh, Mason gave a story about um, diabetes. And I saw what Jody went through. You know, didn't think I watched her? But she just waved her flag. She came to youth group. And she put her hands up in the air. And she said, my God is stronger than diabetes. God has got my kid. We watch each other, guys. We watch each other. And so that breathes life into me and into each other, but like it also, it helps us in such incredible ways. If you are struggling to wave your flag, other people can come alongside you and help you wave it. If you see someone maybe trying to put up the white flag or something like that, you go over to them and you remind them who their savior is, who their God is, because their flag doesn't just mean like that, oh, we kind of got this, like God is victorious, right? He hasn't got a victory, he conquered all, right? And so my points here are, to wave your flag at your situations because God is stronger. It doesn't matter what it is, God is stronger. My point is to use our community. If you see someone struggling to wave their flag, go help them or ask for help. And another thing was that, you know, Francis Scott Key was just an outside watching, right? He wasn't a soldier. He wasn't really qualified to be there. And he saw the difference it made. And he wasn't really qualified to be there. And he wasn't a big poet or artist, but he just saw the difference. And he pulled out some letters in his back pocket. He didn't have special songwriting paper. He didn't have a special pen. And he just wrote, and the flag was still there. And he had a long voyage. He was bored. And he just wrote this poem that has forever influenced the rest of American history. Right? And so for the Francis Scott Keys in the room, we can make a difference still, too. You know, my mom's going through her thing, or Joey's going through her thing. Any simple encouragement will make a difference. You know, any simple texts or 
um, couple of words makes a difference, and we'll see how it all folds out later. So that's my, my point for communion. Okay? This blood on the door means so much more because it's the blood of Jesus over us, and that we see so much. And so I don't know where you're at today. You know, maybe you need to think about the sacrifice you just made and just dwell there because he says, this is my blood poured out for you, and it was. You know, maybe we have to surrender things to him. Maybe it's things we're holding on to personally. We have baggage that we don't want to let go. Or maybe it's our own kids or something. I don't know. I hear adults talk about that a lot. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Um, Maybe we have to think about how God really sees us. And in communion, just praise him for seeing us as sanctified children of God. Maybe we have to wave our banner at situations, you know. We have a lot of bonds. Maybe you have to define your bond in your life and wave your banner at it. Pray for each other. Think about how this all comes together and points to Christ. And let's have the ushers come up and pass out the cups.
So let's remember um, what this signifies. He died for us. He poured his blood for us. Drink together. You know, um, Katie's message today puts me in a spot, big time. I have two huge challenges in my life. I can lead people through hazardous situations at work, through marriage deals, through a bunch of things, right? Two things make me shake. One of them is standing here. It's huge. My legs shake, my stomach turns, my accent comes out. (laughs) But I can't wave that flag. Yeah, I'm scared. But God's got me. He's got my back. Always has. And he proves himself time and time again. He's got me. No matter how much fear I have in my life, how many things go wrong, he's had my back. I've been always stand, I've always stood on his hand. And he's taken me from place to place, from person to person, from relationship to relationship, through hard time to hard time always victorious in his name. This youth group here, um, one of the biggest decisions I've made was to join the, the team of leaders. That was scary. Standing in front of these kids who seemingly aren't paying attention when you're trying to teach and they're uh, attempted to text when the phones are on the floor. Um, I haven't, when I talk, I haven't put the phones in the middle of the room. And uh, so no one can text, including me. All in an attempt to get them to get something out of what I'm saying. And sometimes it seems like they're not. But then later on you see what happens. You know, during worship time, um, uh, during the youth services, um, you see somebody walk over to somebody else and pray with them. Well, we didn't tell them to go do that. They're acting on their own. They're taking the steps of faith that we're supposed to be taking as adults. And some of us don't. I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of walking out of this wall sometimes and, well, church is done with, whoop, I'm out of here. Bring that flag with you. You are a Christian. You are somebody who Christ died for. Christ died for all those people out there also. Take it with you. Can you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this youth group. Thank you for the people that are here today, Lord. I pray that you bless them all, bless us all. I pray that we can take you out of here. Uh, with us today, Lord, and uh, bless the rest of this day. You are all dismissed. Also, if you have anything that we can pray for, uh, the prayer team will be here. Um, Anything, sicknesses, marriages, pray for all. We have a big flag.